And since everyone sang in the old days as they do yet, it wasn't too strange that the tiny toddler named John Stainer also sang almost as soon as he talked. The wonder was that he sang so well that even in his ABC years, the family took note of his voice. And a Christmas carol was being born in his heart. We'll have that story in a moment, but to foresee a mighty happy yuletide for you and yours takes no fortune telling or looking into the past just to look in on this friend of ours. Little John Stainer seemed to wake up like the birds, singing, trilling a child's song, or even his own off-the-cuff chant of the sunshine. As soon as he could stretch his chin high enough, he was at the organ. He'd have to balance precariously on tiptoe, pump manfully with the other foot, while he tried to pull himself up with one hand and press the keys with the other. Schoolmaster Stainer laughed to see this ludicrous midget musician. But for all his laughter, he took his small son's interest in music seriously. And he took his small son's person to St. Paul's Cathedral to consult the choir master there about suitable training. The choir master, once he heard the boy sing, was elated. Here was a prize addition for his choir, if there ever was one. So small John, only seven and short enough to be in constant danger of tripping over his choir robes, sang at St. Paul's Cathedral. But learning choir harmonies wasn't enough. He had to master the organ, too, and he did. By the time he was 14, he was playing the organ in other churches in London, and at one time in two churches every Sunday, which was enough to keep even his lively young legs running. heard his music next, or he played the organ while a student, and then it was back to St. Paul's Cathedral again, but not as a choir boy. Now he was organist at one of London's most famous churches. It was a triumph, a joy, to let the melodies flow out of his heart and echo among the great arches, till the rich harmonies seemed to come mysteriously from heaven itself. 
Perhaps John Stainer might have spent a lifetime there, but failing eyesight that blurred the pages of music as he played told him he must quit. And so he quit the organ, but music never. Melody has many forms. It can be coaxed from an organ, or it can be set on paper in black and white. And so John Stainer turned to the creation of music on the printed page. His songs rang through all the churches of England and so impressed Queen Victoria that he was knighted. Now he was Sir John Stainer, known through the entire land. But he never climbed so high that he forgot the small and humble beginnings and the joyous songs that had once filled a schoolmaster's home with happiness for a little boy. And he often took some of those old folk songs that his family had sung and arranged or adapted them into new melodies. There was one that he liked to hum or whistle, one that made him think of his mother's clear soprano and his father's bold singing voice that seemed always close to happy laughter. It went something like this. Alas, my love, you do me wrong to cast me off discourteously, for I have loved you so long, delighting in your company. Green sleeves was all my joy. Green sleeves was my delight. Green sleeves was my heart of gold, and all for my lady, green sleeves. It didn't make much sense, as is the way with a lot of folk songs, but John Stainer liked it, and its rollicking melody that had paced many a dancing foot across the village green. And so he borrowed that lively melody, arranged it with a slight change here and there, and fitted it to verses written by the poet William Dix. And thus, from a boyhood memory of a lad who sang like the birds, without prompting and without end, came a song to add to our Christmas fantasy, a song that asks, What child is this? Thank you. 
you ever in the passing parade of Christmas fantasies dreamed of what Christmas in heaven? Perhaps you and I together can, after this word from a friend of Christmas on Earth. you and I dream of a Christmas Eve in heaven. Only once in a while does she allow her thoughts to retrace the path of the days when she walked humbly as the chosen handmaid of the Lord in patience waiting for the fulfillment of the angel's prophecy that she should bring forth a son and call him Jesus. Only once in a while, then the stars seem to increase their brilliance. The songs of the angels break through the clouds in greater triumph, and finally the star reaches its peak of glory, and all of the heavens catch fire from its light. And then it is that Mary takes her place at the knees of the one who sat at her knees so many centuries ago. And once again, it seems that the star stays its brilliance directly over the place where she sits now with the Christ. It is Christmas Eve in heaven. In the background, angels sing. Round the heavenly throne, saints gather. One by one, their gifts they bring. Heavenly frankincense and myrrh, brought by wise men from afar. Hearts aglow with love and worship from shepherds who first saw the star. Memories of his prayers and teachings shine through the apostles' eyes as they pause to pay their tribute for his love-filled sacrifice. Mary's smile greets all of them. Reboni, cries the Magdalene, kneeling over now in rapturous worship of the one who made her clean. Now comes Lazarus and his sisters, 
Beloved by Christ in Bethany, following them is Jericho's blind man, whose faith in Christ caused him to see. Now the saints bowed down in worship, humble, thankful, full of praise, and the angels lift their voices as the star extends its rays. To the sin-filled world below, reminding men of love that can point the way to Bethlehem, point true paths of peace to man. It is Christmas Eve in heaven. It is Christmas Eve on earth. Let men bring their gifts in honor of the Christ child's humble birth. Mother Mary draws the curtain over years of memories, pins it with the star of heaven, bows once more in prayers for peace. In the days when the world was young, there lived in France a man of no importance. Everyone said he was a man of no importance, and he firmly believed this for himself, for he was just a poor traveling juggler who could not read or write, who went about from town to town following the little country fairs and performing his tricks for a few pennies a day. His name was Barnaby. When the weather was beautiful and people were strolling about the streets, this juggler would find a clear space in the village square, spread a strip of old carpet out on the cobblestones, and on it he would perform his tricks for children and grown-ups alike. Now, Barnaby, although he knew he was a man of no importance, was an amazing juggler. First, he would only balance a tin plate on the tip of his nose. But when the crowd had collected, he would stand on his hands and juggle six copper balls in the air at the same time, catching them with his feet. And sometimes, when he would juggle twelve sharp knives in the air, the villagers would be so delighted that a rain of pennies would fall on his strip of carpet. And when his day's work was over, and he was wearily resting his aching muscles, Barnaby would collect the pennies in his hat, kneel down reverently, and thank God for the gift. 
And always the people would laugh at his simplicity, and everyone would agree that Barnaby would never amount to anything. But all this is about the happy days in Barnaby's life, the springtime days when people were willing to toss a penny to a poor juggler. When winter came, Barnaby had to wrap his juggling equipment in the carpet and trudge along the roads begging a night's lodging in farmer's barns or entertaining the servants of some rich nobleman to earn a meal. And Barnaby never thought of complaining. He knew that the winter and the rains were as necessary as the spring sunshine, and he accepted his lot. For how, Barnaby would say to himself as he trudged along, could such an ignorant fellow as myself hope for anything better? And one year in France there was a terrible winter. It began to rain in October, and there was hardly a blue sky to be seen by the end of November. And on an evening in early December, at the end of a dreary, wet day, as Barnaby trudged along a country road, sad and bent, carrying under his arm the golden balls and knives wrapped up in his old carpet, he met a monk, riding a fine white mule dressed in warm clothes, well-fed and comfortable, the monk smiled at the sight of Barnaby and called to him, It's going to be cold before morning. How would you like to spend the night at the monastery? And that night Barnaby found himself seated at the great candle-lit dining hall of the monastery. Although he sat at the bottom of the long table, together with his servants and the beggars, Barnaby thought he had never seen such a wonderful place in his life. The shining faces of fifty monks relaxing, after this day of work and prayer. The monk who had met Barnaby on the road turned to the abbot. This is a good man, simple and pure of heart. So the abbot nodded, and Barnaby that night put his juggling equipment under a cot in his own cubicle and decided that never again would he go back to his old profession. And in the days that followed, everyone smiled at the eager way he scrubbed the floors and labored throughout the buildings. And everyone smiled at his simplicity. As for Barnaby, his face shone with happiness from morning until night, until two weeks before Christmas. And then Barnaby's joy suddenly turned to misery, for around him he saw every man preparing a wonderful gift to place in the chapel on Christmas. Brother Maurice, who had the art of illuminating copies of the Bible, and Brother Marbodi was completing a marvelous statue of Christ. Brother Ambrose, who wrote music and had completed scoring a great hymn to be played on the organ during Christmas services. All about Barnaby, those educated, trained artists followed their work, each one of them reading a beautiful gift to dedicate to God on Christmas Day. And what about Barnaby? He could do nothing. I am but a rough man, unskilled in the arts, and I can write no book, offer no paintings or statue or poem. Alas, I have no talent. I have no gift worthy of the day. Then a strange thing happened. On the evening of the Christmas day, when the chapel should have been deserted, one of the monks came running, white-faced and panting with exertion into the private office of the abbot. He threw open the door without knocking, seized the abbot by the arms, Father, a frightful thing is happening. 
The most terrible sacrilege ever to take place is going on right in our own chapel. Come. Together, the two portly men ran down the corridors, burst through a door, and came out on the balcony at the rear of the chapel. The monk pointed down toward the altar. The abbot looked. Turned ashen in color. He's mad. For down below, in front of the altar, was Barnaby. He had spread out his strip of carpet, and kneeling reverently upon it was actually juggling in the air twelve golden balls. He was giving his old performance and giving it beautifully. His bright knives, the shining balls, the tin plate, balanced on the tip of his nose, and on his face was a look of adoration and joy. We must seize him at once, cried the abbot, and turned for the door. But at that moment, a light filled the church, a brilliant beam of light coming directly from the altar. And both the monks sank to their knees. For as Barnaby knelt exhausted on his carpet, they saw the statue of the Virgin Mary move. She came down from her pedestal, and coming to where Barnaby knelt, she took the blue hem of her robe and touched it to his forehead, gently drying the perspiration that glistened there. Then the light dimmed, and up in the choir balcony, the monk looked at his superior and said God accepted the only gift he had to give. And the abbot slowly nodded. Blessed are the simple in heart, for they shall see God. fields on Christmas Eve, my grandpa used to go. My mittened hand held close in his across the frozen snow. On our way to do shopping like this with a friend of ours. Christmas spell can foretell the weather. This ancient custom comes from southern France and provides a different and attractive centerpiece for the festive Christmas table. You must take 12 small bowls and name one for each month of the year. Fill them with damp sand and be sure to keep damp too. 
And then in about six weeks or so, depending on the germination period of the wheat seed in each bowl, the attractive young sprouts will decorate the table, and the growth of each separate bowl indicates favorable or unfavorable growing conditions and weather for the month of the year it represents. But now the issue is not in doubt as to conditions favorable for a Merry Christmas when the air is filled with shouts like this from a friend of ours. <laughs> 